KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. We wanted to talk about the Supreme Court's so called shadow docket. Now, it's something you probably heard a lot about as a result of that extremely controversial Texas abortion law that was allowed to go into effect. So, what is this shadow docket? Is it something new? How do cases on the shadow docket differ from a regular case before the Supreme Court? To talk about this, we caught up with Laura E. Little. She is the James G. Schmidt Professor of Law at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. Interesting and important conversation. Give a listen. Just for people that aren't familiar, I know it's not the official name, but kind of explain, define for us, what the shadow docket is, what this is all about. Let's start with the the idea of what's a docket. A docket is just a formal list of cases that have been filed with the court. The term shadow docket was developed or proposed in 2015, but it's very apt. And for that reason, it has really taken hold. A regular docket concerns cases that are filed with the court. And if the Supreme Court would like to hear the case, they issue an order, they have the parties write very extensive briefs, and they have full oral argument. They then issue an extremely extensive opinion, and there might be concurring opinions, dissenting opinions, but lots of explanation for their ruling. The shadow docket concerns petitions that are filed on an emergency basis and often do not have an opportunity to be heard by the parties beyond the initial paperwork. They do not have extensive briefing. There's no real notice to the public that this particular issue is going to be decided very, very quickly. So that in fact, you don't have that kind of notice an opportunity to be heard. And the term, you referenced this, the term shadow docket, only been around since 2015. What's the origin of the term? Do you know? It comes from a 2015 law review article by a Chicago law professor who was criticizing this practice. Um, He was observing that, in fact, there were many myths many trends tending towards more decisions pursuant to the shadow docket. And the reason why it has this name, it's just a a nickname, shall we say, for something that otherwise didn't have a name. The reason why it has it is because it's not government in the sunshine. Government in the sunshine is something that in fact gives the public notice that something very important is being discussed, that's going to be decided. It's something that, in fact, people can pay attention to, hear the arguments on both sides if they're interested. The press can cover it in depth, is not surprised by what happened. And in fact, the justices have to come clean in terms of which way they're voting. And often with the shadow docket, we don't even know the vote lineup. That is, we don't know which justice was on which side, unless, of course, some of the justices write a dissent. This is not 
we talk about the name, the Shadow Docket from 2015. This is not a new practice, though. Has this been around as long as there's been a Supreme Court, or is it relatively new, or is this something that's been there since day one? This is something that's been there for a very, very long time, and probably from day one. However, traditionally and historically, it deals with emergency orders, reasons why, in fact, it's important for the court to act right away or very, very swiftly because of the particular situation. Perhaps the best example is a request for a stay of execution for someone that has been um, subject to the death penalty. A governor files a death warrant or an execution warrant, and there's a strong argument, so one might believe, for actually taking another look at the case to ensure that justice has been done. This is the type of thing, because the governor's order has a certain time that has to be dealt with very quickly. So yes, they've been around a long time. They generally have been historically confined to emergency situations. I should say that in all fairness to the whole picture, the Supreme Court works very slowly and it works at its own speed. The only thing that limits the speed at which the Supreme Court does something is the end of the term, which it itself sets probably, you know, one might say when the ferry leaves for Nantucket Island on J July 1st. But I mean, that's really the only thing that limits. So some, it takes, it can take a very long time for a case to be decided. So if there's an emergency, this is a mechanism for doing that. And I'm curious, you talk about that we've had this for a long time, but it seems like it's ramped up in use. Is there a, a point where you've started to notice more and more items on the shadow docket or the shadow docket being used kind of outside the scope of what was traditionally understood to be the, the focus on it? I absolutely can. In the period when the George W. Bush administration was in place and then when the Barack Obama administration was in place, Mind you, that that's um, 16 years, right? Because they were both two-term presidents. There were eight shadow docket requests by the presidential administration. In the four years that Trump was president of the United States, there were 41 requests. That's 20 times more than the previous four terms of presidency. This seems to me as a layman, frankly, why would I bother to take a case regularly to the Supreme Court when if I feel like I I know the way the justices are going to vote, I utilize this track and get it signed off on or ignored or a stay or whatever? It It seems kind of alarming to me that this is allowed to, to happen with this type of frequency. Am I crazy? You're not crazy. It does open up an opportunity for gaming the system, which is, I think, maybe what, what your question is getting at. That is, if in fact, for example, you can figure out where in the country to file this particular emergency order, you can actually get a particular justice that takes the first look at it. And that's not something that occurs in the regular 
choice. So what one can do is say, okay, I have abortion litigation all over the country, and I'm, I, I want a ruling of, of, of anti-abortion to come, come out of the court. Maybe I might think about doing it in the Sixth Circuit where um, Amy Coney Barrett is, or maybe I should maybe try to get the attention of Justice Alito or Justice Kavanaugh, just to give you an example. I don't mean to attribute motives to the justices or, or whatever, but it does provide an opportunity to have that justice make the first look at the case and perhaps even decide it on their own. That is, each of the justices is, is assigned to different circuits. And when they get these emergency applications, it's in their discretion as individuals whether to go to their colleagues. If it's a contested issue, the protocol is, in fact, to ask the colleagues to, to vote on the entire application. But that's not happening so much anymore. So for example, University of Indiana had a vaccine mandate and that came before the court in early August. It was a very important time for higher education because colleges and universities were trying to figure out whether it was appropriate, legal, constitutional to have vaccine mandates. Well, she surprisingly to some issued a ruling that was arguably liberal in that she left in place the University of Indiana vaccine mandate. However, we know that's, that's a contested issue. Like people get angry about vaccines one way or another. So the protocol would have been to actually ask the entire court to vote on whether this particular application should be granted. The use of the shadow docket here, the constant use of it, it feels to me that there could be a danger of it delegitimizing the court in the eyes of many people because you've got these huge, you know, let's look at the Texas abortion law. You know, everybody kind of knew this battle was coming, but I know there was the case, there's the case in Mississippi that I think a lot of people had pointed to as that's probably where the rubber will meet the road. And you've got this huge contentious issue that this Texas law puts on the table. It goes through the the shadow docket and the court allows it to stand and it, for all intents and purposes, bans abortion in Texas. And we know that there are other states with Republican leaders that are, if not the exact same legislation, very similar to it. It just seems like something this big, there should be more to it than just something on the shadow docket. And most of the justices in favor don't even sign off on it. And here we go. Like that just that that seems like that's not good. Well, it's my opinion that it delegitimizes the court in that it will. Number one, one of the reasons why the people are so upset about it is it's been used in a one sided way in favor of a particular political agenda, which we might put the label conservative on. Now, to be fair, there's been a few liberal rulings, or we would put that label on, 
um, in which the shadow docket has been used. So it's not completely 100% conservative, but it's almost that. And the court, I think, needs to be careful in appearing as though it is not open-minded, that it has a pre-existing agenda. Our United States Supreme Court has a duty of impartiality and to take every case as it comes and to call every case as it comes. And that starts to undermine the legitimacy of the system when it looks like there's, it, there's something that's definitely used to serve a particular point of view. It also violates basic principles of our system of justice. Adequate notice and an opportunity to be heard. The idea that in fact the court, particularly the Supreme Court, has a duty to the public and the written word, particularly for the Supreme Court, is their way of communicating with the public. So if they're doing these things swiftly, under the radar, and with a political agenda, that does not actually encourage faith in our judicial system. One of our framers, John Marshall, once said that a popular government, which is what we have, a democracy of, of sorts, without popular information is the prologue to a farce, a tragedy, or both. Right. So the idea is that the court's doing things under the radar. It's not in the sunshine. We don't know that actually it's it's going to grasp at this issue. And we don't know all, what all the arguments have been said and how it, how they've been aired. And then all of a sudden we have a decision. The Texas abortion case is an unusual example because, number one, we have another case on the regular docket for which there'll be full argument. And we'll be able to see how the justices deal with that. But the Texas abortion case actually foreshadows the big result in that case, which is an overruling of our constitutional precedent, Roe versus Wade and more recent rulings. Because it effectively left in place a prohibition on abortion any time after six weeks from the woman's last menstrual period, whereas the current precedent says that abortion is protected during the first trimester. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is that you could call it extremely ingenious, you could call it sneaky and crafty and devious, depending on your point of view, but the Texas law actually is crafted in such a way is to try to prevent its prohibition from being touched by the judiciary. So what you effectively had was five members of the court who voted to let this law go in place when in fact it was highly unusual and in some people's view devious and wrong, which allowed a result that was unconstitutional. I guess one of the things that I have a hard time getting my head around is we talk about this Mississippi case, which is in the pipeline. I don't quite understand how none of the justices that allowed this to go through don't see we're going to look at this in a more open manner in a month and a half. I don't see why with so much on the line, so much credibility on the line, so much on the line for the country, 
you go in this direction? Well, I, I can't get in the justices' heads. So I, I'd prefer not to conjecture about what their motivations are, but I can describe what they did. To be fair to the justices who allowed this Texas law to stand and prevent women from getting abortions pretty much all the time, they were very clear in their opinion that something, it was a little vague, but it said something to the effect of very significant arguments have been made that the law is unconstitutional. And that's because it's completely contrary to existing Supreme Court precedent. So they recognized that they weren't prejudging the issue, right? So they covered themselves on that. That is, this case did not actually decide whether Roe versus Wade stands or falls, but it certainly gave us a preview of which way the majority of the court is likely to rule. The other thing that was highly unusual about the law is that, in fact, as I said, it allows this in run, the whole procedure dealing with the bounty that's paid to the private person, whether it be an Uber drive, driver that turns someone in or someone else that turns someone in for getting an abortion. That is a mechanism that appears to be, so said four members of the court, a way to avoid the way the Constitution is supposed to operate. That is, if you have officials that are implementing an unconstitutional statute, you should be able to challenge that and evaluate the constitutionality of it. So that's another real dangerous component of the case as to why the majority five out of the nine decided the way they did. I I can't speculate. I, I don't have any basis for a strong, strong opinion. Given what we've discussed here, is there a way, for lack of a better term, to reform this? So the Supreme Court is created by the Constitution. The Constitution is a very broad document, right? So it doesn't actually go into great detail about what the Supreme Court can or cannot do. But the other thing the Constitution says, however, is that Congress has the power to set rules and regulations so that this might be an opportunity for Congress to step in and through a statutory mechanism, it's a procedural mechanism, they could propose changes to the federal rules of appellate procedure which govern the Supreme Court. And that gets rubber stamped basically. And that it, that could possibly chasten the court in terms of how it does business. The other more informal mechanism is shaming. I mean, there was, there's been a lot of pushback to the shadow docket. Mostly it's been among academics and the like, but what they did in the abortion case really brought it to light. I can tell you that subsequent to that, there was an execution case, a death penalty case, where the court could have ruled on it in that summary way that it uses in the, the, the shadow docket, but it did set the case for oral argument. It was a case dealing with religion, so I guess it was important um, to some of the justices in particular. So that, I mean, you could speculate that it's now behaving itself a little bit better because of the pushback from the public and the press and the like. 
to the Texas abortion case. So those are the two avenues that I, I identified. Congress could get involved and the public could, could continue to push back, the press and the public. It seems to me that this could go really far in a really alarming way really quickly if you stayed on this track. How concerned are you if there is no change in or reform of what we could see down the road kind of utilizing this toolbox? I see opportunities for hope. I'll put it that way. First, you have Chief Justice Roberts. Chief Justice Roberts is not someone that is usually associated with a pro-abortion or pro-choice or um, liberal point of view. He dissented in the Texas case. He dissented from the Texas case because, in fact, he's an institutionalist. He's worried about the way the court operates and keeping its legitimacy and its importance in terms of where it stands as the so-called lesser branch in our constitutional system. So if there's others like Chief Justice Roberts on the bench that have very strong points of view on social issues, but nevertheless see themselves as having the primary role of maintaining the integrity of the Supreme Court, there's a possibility that there is, in fact, a limit beyond which people will not go. There's also the possibility of shaming by the other justices that are not participating in the shadow docket. And you saw that in the dissents in the Texas case. That is particularly Justice Sotomayor, particularly Justice Kagan, So I called this as they saw it, which was this shows how far the shadow docket practice could potentially go. Because we're talking about people with integrity when we're talking about the nine justices on the Supreme Court. And they really care. They might have life tenure, but they really care how they're going to look in the history books that, in fact, you might have some kind of pullback. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.